0: But we might just sing a song and go home. (laughs) But um, we're going to plow ahead into uh, the book of Genesis, the story in which we find ourselves and we find our own story, actually, and we find the stories like those that we uh, circle around and celebrate. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 14, beginning with verse 17. And through the end of the chapter, verse 24, give your attention to the reading of God's Word. After his return from the defeat of Keterleomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him, that is, Abram, in the valley of Shaveh, that is, the king's valley, and Melchizedek, king of Salem. Brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. And I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eskal, and Mamre take their share." The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Pray with me. Oh, Father, we've heard your word read. We ask that you would fill us with your spirit and soften our hearts, that we may delight in your presence, sharpen our minds that we may discern your truth shape our wills that we may desire your ways through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, I want to tell you something that you already know that would be a reminder to remind you of something that you have experienced this week, probably even today, and will tomorrow. It's this. All of us who attempt for a single day to lead a life centered on God and his kingdom will discover something, that you have a battle on your hands. You know that. We, we circle around that. We're not sure what to do with that battle. It's a battle that it seems relentless at times. It's a battle that, um, that we overcome at times. But it's a battle that continues to show itself. It one, it's one that will not go away. To live a single day, a life centered on God. I mentioned earlier this morning in a class that there was a time in my life when <clears throat> I was a, right before my senior year of high school. I, it dawned on me that I had thought about God three days in a row. I, I could tell from that moment that God was up to something. That was new news. To think about God for three days in a row. <clears throat> but, but the battle that, that continues is not only how do we think about God, the one who thinks of us constantly, but, but how do we think about Him in such a way that it leads us in right paths? Richard Lovelace. <clears throat> writes about this battle and the inclination and in the, in the disposition of our hearts. And he says, unless God changes our hearts, we are actively allergic to him. <laughs> Does that sound familiar? Uh, maybe it was true once upon a time and it may feel like that way tomorrow where, where, where as drawn as you are, you you're also find yourself moving away. Uh, And what you need to know today, what we need to know is that's not just you. That's, That's the story that we find ourselves in. It's the result of the fall. It's the brokenness of the world in which we live and its impact on our own hearts. Because you see, we do not have a wellspring of love which will delight in God and continually to seek his face and do his will. We don't have that. We don't come with that. And you don't leave with that when you inhabit a worship service. (laughs) You don't leave with a wellspring. But what you do leave with is something better. And that's what our text shows us today. Here's what we're going to find. What we're going to find as we drill down on this very mysterious passage is that when we clearly see, we're going to see that when we clearly see and when we recognize in who, the one in whose presence we live, that we can see ourselves more accurately, that we can respond appropriately, and that we can live faithfully. We learned that from Abram. The context, if you were here last week, if you weren't, I'll tell you briefly, uh, this chapter 14 is one piece. It starts with verse 1, and it goes to where we finish today. And it starts with the, a battle. Where four kings, led by this figure before us, Kerelamarr of Elam, routed five kings, including the king of Solomon, and carried off Lot, Abram's nephew, who had settled in Sodom. That's the story. So Lot is now freed. The battle is over. Because Abram, when he got the news, he armed a band of 318 warriors and he set off in pursuit. A night attack near Damascus defeated those kings and rescued Lot and took others captive and all the goods. So there is Lot. And and while that first battle is over, there's another battle that looms right here in these verses today. And that, in fact, is what the whole passage is leading up to. We're going to see two kings. We're going to hear two proposals. And we're going to see one faithful response. The setting is in verse 17. After the defeat, certainly on the heels of this, the the, the dust has not settled. Uh, The picture that we get is Abram in the valley of Shavuot, later known as the King's Valley. You can read about that in 2 Samuel. Apparently, it was east of Jerusalem. It was not far from Jerusalem. Uh, but the battle has raged up and down the highways, the, the whole extent of the land, and now they've ended back near Jerusalem. And Abram is somewhere near the front of the pack, most likely, a pack that included the 318 men. And those that had been rescued and all the goods. So it is swollen to perhaps a thousand. Who knows? The text doesn't tell us. But a thousand men and women and children. Riding on horses or donkeys or walking the trails. And the dust is flying. And there is Abram. Probably bloody. I mean it doesn't say so. But we know that this was a war. It was a battle. And he was outnumbered. You can imagine blood-stained clothing and maybe grimy, sweaty dispositions on the faces of those that were making their way home. Weary. But glad it's over. Thirsty. Hungry. And then something happens. They're making their way, Abram, somewhere near the front. And, and into Abram's view come two figures, probably on horses themselves. Verse 18 starts with the word and. It talks about one king and another king. And, and what we can probably conclude is they appeared simultaneously. It wasn't first one and then the other from the language. So there are two figures that have made their way, two kings, we learn. One of them we've met before. We met in chapter 14, verse 2. We learned, actually, we learned his name. The king of Sodom, his name is Berah. So here is Berah, who is familiar to Abram because he has rescued him as one of those that had been hauled off by Keterleomar. And now here comes Sodom again, king, the king of Sodom. We're going to learn more and actually hear more about him as this Texan foal. So we've met one. But there's another one here introduced to us. He, he's the one really that this narrative centers around. He's the one whose identity we need to grasp. And we have some clues. In verse 18, we we hear that his name is Melchizedek. It's interesting. He's just dropped into the scene. He's, He's not introduced. It's just, and then the king of Salem, Melchizedek, did this or said this. His name is an unusual one. It means basically, my king is righteous. Melchizedek, my king is righteous, stands before Abram. But we learn something else from him from the two titles that are ascribed to him. King of Salem, which Nate mentioned earlier, Salem uh, standing for Jerusalem or the peace that is Jerusalem, the city that is peace and the king of peace. The king of Salem, whose king is righteous, the king of peace. But We also have another title, don't we? It's laid out in front of us. It's actually in parenthesis here. The, the editors don't know how to really do that. They just added a parenthesis to make the point and make sure we got it, that he was a priest of God Most High. Literally, that means, that reads, a priest of El Elyon. That's Hebrew, and that was one of the titles that worshipers of God, of Yahweh, used of him. We, got the, we will get the personal name of God in Exodus. That hasn't really come yet. But Elion, the of God Most High, was one of the titles used by the patriarchs. He was a priest of God Most High. And that, should, that language should surprise you as a reader. Because here is the first time we stumble over the word priest. We're to to make something of that. He is a priest, the first one named in scripture, a king of Salem, a priest of God most high. And we continue to learn when we remember that this is a, a Canaanite. Oh, by the way, this king of Salem, Melchizedek, he's not Israel. He's... Canaanite he comes and he is recognized we don't know this but apparently he knows the story he he comes and recognizes Abram and says the battle was yours and he 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 makes it very clear Abram it was God who delivered you it was God who won this battle he speaks to him in personalized terms and he comes to him The Canaanite, recognizing the hand of God in Abram, recognizing God's hand at work. And we're going to see that again and again and again. Those outside the people of God that recognize there's something going on here. There's something grand and beautiful and glorious. God at work. The Canaanite. Uh, Kent Hughes' writing says... Melchizedek is, is primarily an example of a non-Jew who recognizes God's hand at work in Israel. Like Abimelech will in chapter 21. Like Rahab will in the book of Joshua. Like Ruth. Like Naaman. And maybe as a forerunner of the Magi who come to the feet of Jesus. The centurions or the Syrophoenician woman. Let alone the multitude of Gentiles converted, converted and mentioned in the book of Acts. They are those who have discovered that in Abram, all the families of the earth find blessing. And that should ring a bell. That should ring a bell. If you've read Genesis in chapter 12, Abram is told that you will be a blessing and you will will receive a blessing and you will be a blessing. You will be a blessing to who? To the nations. To those outside of Israel, you will be a blessing. And here's Melchizedek coming front and center the center of the stage, the center of the drama, stands a Canaanite looking at Abraham and saying, blessed be you. There's something else we can learn about Melchizedek, and this is actually a little backhanded piece of information. It's what's not said. It's what's not said in a book that makes a big deal out out of genealogies. There is no clue where Melchizedek came from, who he belongs to, who his father was, who his mother was. And when the writer of Hebrews connects the dots and makes the story, he says he was without father and without mother and without beginning and without end. And that's a clue. That's a clue to who it is that stands before Abram and those rescued the day, this day. John Calvin said, the no family connection is not omission or lack of thought. The Spirit of God composing these words elevates him above the common herd of men. This is no ordinary man. We don't yet know who he is. But the story is beginning to emerge as Abram's story unfolds. I mentioned the king of Sodom. So there's two kings here in front of Abram. That's the king of Salem. The king of Sodom is there. We read, we understand more about him in verses 21 through 24. This king who had been rescued by Abram, who owed his very life to Abram, comes from, he's the king of Sodom. And what we can probably connect him with is everything that Sodom represented, evil and wickedness. So on the one hand, we have the king of peace. On another hand, we have a king of evil, wickedness, two kings before Abram. And they come to Abram with what we'll call today two proposals. One of them sounds just like a proposal. We'll get to that in a second. But one of them comes with blessing and banquet. And these are proposals of a sort. The the proposal is, Abram, before you there is spread food. Take and eat. I propose to you that this is for you. And he comes to this weary exhausted bloodied band of warriors and he lays before them not bread and water that would have been the standard fare that's what would have been expected that's what they would have given all that they had in order to have some bread and some water but the king of Salem lays before Abram a banquet it's bread and wine When you combine those two words together, you can can understand that what we have here is a a full meal, most likely. Uh, It's a banquet spread for these weary travelers. It's way beyond nourishment. It's luscious. It's lavish. It's bread and wine, for Pete's sake. He lays it out there and says, this is for you. But he also comes, while his hands were full of gifts, his lips were full of blessing. In the passage before us, verse 19, we read, he blessed him three times. So there's, there's where we connect the stories. When, when the king of Salem comes out and he blessed Abram three times, he's, the connection is to that Genesis 12 passage That you will be a blessing. Uh, You will be blessed and you will be a blessing. As priest king, Melchizedek mediates God's power and protection on Abram. That's what a blessing was. It was a name-placing event. It It was more than just good wishes or a prayer. It was placing God's name on Abram. The Canaanite, King Priest, comes to the Israelite and places the name of God on him. Okay, so it's beginning to it's beginning to crystallize that this one, this mysterious one, comes and he offers banquet and blessing, while the other comes with disdain and a deal. Look at verse 21. It's kind of out of the blue as well. Here is the king of Sodom who owes his very life. He's really at Abram's mercy. And he comes to him with something of an expression on his face that you have to read between the lines. But when you hear what he says, you can taste it and see that he considers Abram a little unworthy of respect and maybe contempt. It's not a generous offer. It's not a, I lay down my life because I owe you my life kind of offer. There's a, there's a bargain that he is asking for. And he's basically saying to Abram, Abram, take the credit and keep the loot. It's yours. Just give me my people back. As a victor, as the victor, Abram has a right to keep it all. That's the way it worked. Since he had defeated his conquerors, the king of Sodom was at Abram's mercy. Yet the king of Sodom took the initiative in attempting to make a deal by asking to receive back his subjects whom Abram had rescued. In spite of the fact that the dust had not settled on Abram's decisive deliverance of the king of Sodom. So he makes a show of generosity by offering to let Abram keep the spoils Which were in any case, Abram's right by conquest. He's offering something that he already has, is another way of understanding it. And so here we begin to see Abram's faithful response because he responds to both proposals. He looks at Barah, he ignores the deal. And he responds with generosity. Oh, he has laid aside a tenth. We'll get to that. But he gives to Bera not only what Bera has demanded, requested, but everything else as well. He says, Bera, may it not be said that you were the one who made me rich, it's all yours. This is yours. Take it and go with it. And in doing so, Abram issues what is a, a declaration of allegiance to the Lord and a testimony of the Lord's ability to provide for his needs. When you think about it, what could Abram have done with all of that he gave away? You remember he was living in the hill, hill country. He didn't have, he didn't have the, the resources. He could have used this. He might have used it. But he says, it won't be from you, Bera. It will be from another. Another will meet my needs. This is where Abram's story and yours and mine coincide. You see, there are two proposals to Abraham. There there are proposals that come to us. You see, what what Abram declined was the very kinds of things that the world offers you and me daily. And that is something to trust in besides the one who made us for himself. And you've got to think about this for yourself. What are those things that you're inclined to trust in rather than the one to whom Abram now turns? He has said no to the king of Sodom, but he turns to the king of Salem, to Melchizedek. And he places a tenth of all that he had acquired at the feet of the king of Salem by placing a tenth to a king or to a god was widespread in the ancient Near East. It precedes, predates Mosaic law. That was going on. The king, you see, owned a tenth of everything. But it's not the king's tenth that Abram offers because the king didn't ask for it. Abram responds to the reality that he's standing in the presence of another. Someone who is superior to himself. We see that he's the one who blesses. It's the greater who blesses the lesser, right? And it's the king of Salem who blesses Abram. And Abram understands, I'm in the presence of one who is greater than myself. It's beginning to concur to him. The king whose name is righteous. The king of peace. One with no beginning, one with no end. And here, Melchizedek receives from Abram that which is rightly his. You know, as the Old Testament narrative unfolds, Melchizedek virtually disappears. He's going to appear in a psalm, but, but he, he vanishes from the pages of the story. He doesn't occur. There's no mention of this event. There's no reference to him again until David, and David, who, who begins to connect the dots, David the Israelite, who's made king in, Jer- king in Salem, sitting on the throne of the Canaanite throne of Melchizedek, which we, we understand, and David began to understand, And he began to understand that when you combine king and priest in Jerusalem, he was moved to write and to sing of a greater Melchizedek to come. David knew he was not the Messiah. But he knew there was a king priest to sit on that throne and who would do so forever. He knew that the promise of his kingdom was one that would not end but David would die. And so would his son who succeeded him. And so would every king after him until there was one who would sit on that throne, who was the true king priest to which Melchizedek points us. There's there's language that theologians use to talk about this figure. That Melchizedek is a type of Christ. What that simply means is that we see the fulfillment of this image in the story of redemption, that Melchizedek, a figure bigger than life, without end, without beginning, a superior, the king whose name is righteous, the king of peace, all of those things come together. Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews, understood it. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, where he summarizes this passage. Priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to Abraham apportioned a tenth of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, Then he, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. It was an eternal priesthood, it was a superior priesthood. What is it that made Melchizedek's priesthood superior? The Old Testament priesthood that played out over time, you remember Levi and the Levitical priesthood and everything that we're going to read about as you keep reading this story? That Old Testament priesthood could never really deal with sin. Abram stands before Melchizedek as a man with unclean hands and an impure heart, and he knows he needs redemption. He knows he needs the work of a priest. What he didn't know at the time and what we learn as we go is that we need that redemption. We need that priest. We need that king. We need the priest who would become the sacrifice. And that's how they all, threads, come together in Christ. We face those realities The proposals that come at us don't always come from a king riding on a horse. In fact, that's never happened to me. (laughs) But the proposals come. The proposals come persistently and continuously offering a way to live, a way to make life work, a way to survive, a way to pay for the things that we need. It could be a get-rich-quick scheme. That lifetime income that some of us wish were there? How much have you saved? How far does a million dollars go these days? What is it that we would trust in other than the one who has pledged to provide and not just a means of living but for life? Life itself. You know, we tend to bounce from one thing to another because that promises life, and so does that, and so does that. So does he, she, offers of life. We bounce from one to the other. And maybe that's why we find that we can't live a single day centered on God and His purposes Because there's a battle at hand that we lose. And what we need. We need a king priest. We need a king priest who is eternal. We need a king priest who lays before us not merely a banquet. But becomes the banquet. Who gives his life that we would have life. And when we see that. When we see him, we can live in the presence of a king who is a priest and a king forever. There's only one response to that. We're going to sing a song, or we did. Praise my soul, the king of heaven, to his feet your tribute bring. We sang that earlier. To his feet your tribute bring. You see a little bit of that in this passage, don't we? Abram bringing gifts, a tenth of all, bringing his tribute to the king. But even that's hard for us to do. And so we also saying, angels help us to adore him. You behold him face to face. Would you help us see the vivid?" Technicolor, the beauty and the glory of the one before whom we live our lives. Would you help us see that, angels? Because you see it better than we do. And we can pray that prayer and sing that song. But I got one better. It's not just the work of angels. It's not just our steady week after week exploring the story and reminding one another. That's a huge part of this. When we come together week after week, we're reordering our loves once again that get so out of order from week to week. But there's something even better. You see, the Spirit of God indwells you. It is the Spirit of God. The, the, The Father sent the Spirit of the Son to live in you who cry, Abba, Father. And as you look to him, he is the one who has one primary job. It's to help you see, Abba Father. It's to lift the veil from your eyes. It's to help you to see that that offer and that offer and that offer are not what they seem to be. In fact, those offers end up binding us and enslaving us and debilitating us and making us... Incapable of living the battle out day by day. But when the Spirit of God uses the Word of God to open our eyes to see in technicolor the beauty and the grandeur and the glory of the King Priest who lives forever, who makes sacrifice, who became the sacrifice, there's one response. It's praise and gratitude for the one who became for us the one that we need, the one for whom we were made. So, the question this text begs of us is this, and with this we end. What will you render? What will you render today to your great high priest? And king of kings. Let's pray. Father it is. Only when we see you as you are. That we. See ourselves as we truly are. Our need for you. And your great provision for us in Christ. Lord would you. Work into us. This kind of faithful response. That we see in Abram. One who never always got it right. Who failed to see you clearly and to act appropriately and to respond in faith. But here he gets it right. And like him, would you enable us to see you, to come to you? The one who said, All who come to me will never hunger, will never thirst. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing.